You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, episode 14, for March 23rd, 2008. Warning. This episode contains mature themes and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hello, Metamorphs. Welcome back to the Metamore City Podcast. This is Chris Lester, your host, coming to you from a beautiful March afternoon in Metro Detroit. We finally got a break in the weather yesterday, and I actually went out to the store in just a spring jacket and a light sweater today, which is a huge improvement after three and a half months of snowy, overcast days. I'm not really trusting this weather yet. It is Michigan, after all, and it wouldn't be out of character for March to wallop us one last time before it's over. But for now, I'm definitely enjoying a break from the chill. Some exciting stuff has been happening in the last couple of months. In the first week of February, the Metamore City podcast hit a thousand subscribers for the first time. And while our numbers have been dipping down on the weekends, we've consistently hit the 1,000 mark in each of the last five weeks. We've also been listed in the iTunes Featured section under Literature, in the company of such excellent shows as Nina Kimberly the Merciless, Fortress Draconis, and P.G. Holyfield's Murder at Avedon Hill. I owe you guys huge thanks for this, because Metamore City would not be where it is right now without you guys spreading the word about the show. To everyone who has blogged about us, or told a friend, or posted a review on iTunes, thank you. It means more to me than I can say. Speaking of spreading the word, we are now starting to get into convention season. Now, if you're going to any of the cons, you may notice that some of your favorite podcasters are sporting t-shirts with the awesome new Metamore City logo on them. I gave these out to the cast and crew of Metamore City as a thank you for all their hard work, and as a way to spread the word about the show. If you want to help, here's something you can do. If you see someone at a con wearing one of the Metamore City shirts, ask if you can get your picture taken with them. If they say yes, then post the picture on Flickr or your blog or your MySpace page and provide a link back to the Metamore City podcast at www.metamorecity.com. Then email me at feedback at metamorecity.com and let me know that you've completed the mission. I'll be collecting these pictures and putting them up on a new page at the website, the Metamore City Legion of Merit. And, of course, if any of you who have a Metamore City shirt of your own want to put up pictures of yourselves, I'll feature you on the page as well. Now, I can already hear some of you saying, Chris, Chris, how can I get a Metamore City t-shirt? Especially you, Robin. Well, here's the deal. I can sell these shirts to you for the low, low price of 15 US dollars, including domestic shipping. In order to make that happen, though, you'll have to pre-order, and I need to have orders for at least 30 shirts in order to break even on this. So, if you want a t-shirt and you're willing to pay up front for it, email me and let me know. If I get at least 30 people saying that they want shirts, I'll set up a PayPal page where you can place your pre-order. I'll keep the pre-orders open for 30 days from the time I announce them. At the end of that time, if I have enough orders to meet the minimum, I'll order the shirts. Sound good? Cool. If you want a shirt, email me at feedback at metamorcity.com. Okay, that's enough jibber-jabber. Time to get into episode 14, chapter 6 of Making the Cut. But first, here is the story so far. 
Daniel Sharabi's quest for independence from the Psy Collective has led to disaster. He joined his old combat instructor, Victor Hincavos, for an illegal mission to smuggle a package into Metamore City. What he didn't know is that the package was being brought in by the Vampire Crime Syndicate, and that the Psy Collective had sent some of his best friends from high school to intercept the package, fearing that it might contain biological weapons that the vamps intended to use against the telepaths. Both teams carried out their mission under magical disguises, so neither Daniel nor his friends knew that they were on opposite sides of the same mission. Two of the telepathic operatives, Dell and Trace, hijacked the cargo shuttle that was carrying Daniel, Victor, and the package down to the Skyport. They killed two mercenaries that were working with Daniel's team, and mortally wounded Victor. Daniel counterattacked, but he was outgunned and outnumbered. He agreed to surrender in exchange for being allowed to help Victor. He poured his psychic healing power into repairing Victor's wounds, then collapsed from exhaustion. Meanwhile, Dell used his telekinesis to hand off the package to Fiona, who planned to make her escape through the Skyport's ventilation ducts. Before they could land the shuttle, though, the now-healed Victor took Dell and Trace by surprise, using his own TK power to throw their bullets back at them. After fighting with Dell over control of one of the guns, Victor killed both PsyOps in a maddened rage. Daniel was powerless to stop him. Victor left him on the deck next to the two dead bodies while he went into the cockpit to land the shuttle and make his escape. Daniel, after seeing Dell and Trace in action, knew without a doubt that they had to be fellow size. As he slipped into unconsciousness, one thought stayed with him. I helped Victor kill my own people. Dear gods, what have I done? Chapter 6 A shaft of pain and terror shot through Sasha's mind like a red-hot poker. She cried out and fell to the floor, just barely shielding her face from the hard, cold tiles. Sasha? Brian's voice echoed her own distress. He couldn't afford to disconnect from the Skyport's computer network, and she felt his frustration at being unable to reach out to her. After a moment, Sasha realized that the emotions were coming through her thought thread to Trace. She reached out and tried to widen the link, but the connection was tangled and distorted by the presence of so much strong emotion. Sending coherent thoughts at this range was tricky enough when both parties were reasonably calm. When one party was in distress, it was almost impossible. Feelings like pain, grief, and rage made it easier to hear a person's mind, while simultaneously making it harder to make out precisely what the person was thinking just as an audio speaker turned up too loud would sacrifice clarity for distance. "'What's going on, Trace?' she asked, putting as much force behind the thoughts as she could. If Trace heard her, he gave no sign. The flash of terror gave way to a cold, icy dread, a morbid feeling of inevitability. "'Oh, Eli, he doesn't think he's going to make it.' A tide of calm, focused thought came rushing into Sasha through her separate link with Fiona. Sasha grabbed hold of it like a lifeline, steadying herself against the flood of sensations coming from Trace. Fiona wasn't much of a teep, but her long years of practice at controlling her emotions gave her a self-discipline that Sasha envied. She borrowed that strength from Fiona now, building a barricade in her mind that held back enough of Trace's emotions for her to think clearly. Thanks, love, Sasha said, sending a wave of gratitude back to Fiona. Anytime, Fiona said. I will reach the staging area in approximately one minute. 
I can assist you until then, but after that I will need Brian's guidance. Can you get any sense of what is happening? Sasha peered out from behind her mental barrier at the storm that was raging in Trace's thoughts. Amidst the pain and fear, she saw two new emotions, shock and anger. A sense of outrage and betrayal blackened Trace's thoughts, pushing him to keep fighting even as despair ate away at him from the inside. Sasha! Her name rode the tide of emotion into her thoughts. Are you getting this? Yes, Trace! She sent back urgently. Yes, I hear you. Keep fighting, Trace. We'll send help. But Trace didn't seem to hear her. More thoughts followed, fragmented and disjointed by the shaky connection. Rotique. Aster. Arm. Bullets. A chill ran through Sasha. Say that again, Trace. Did you say a rogue teak? Fresh terror ran through Trace, followed by more anger and a sense of desperation. Have to do something. Sasha clutched at her crucifix, running her fingers over it, and sending up a silent prayer to Eli. Trace, please confirm. She said, pushing as hard as she could to send the thoughts through the link. Is it really a rogue? Can Dell stop him? It happened faster than she would have thought possible. Agony stabbed through Trace's body, followed almost instantly by a wave of shock that she knew was an echo from Dell. Then there was an explosion of feelings, frustration, despair, regret, that vanished as suddenly as it came. Sasha reached out for Dell's mind, trying to get some sense from him, a thought, an emotion, anything. Only silence answered her. Dell! A moment later, a sharp pain struck through Trace. He was so full of anger and despair that Sasha thought he was almost past caring. She fought desperately for a picture of what Trace was seeing, to get some sense of what was going on. She got one brief image of a tall black man standing over him, holding something between his fingers and grinning like the adversary himself. Then the image went dark, and Sasha felt Trace's thoughts slip beyond her reach. Trace! Oh, Eli... She sobbed. Trace, come back! Fiona and Brian's thoughts wrapped around her, lending her strength even as they shared her grief. He's gone, Sasha, Fiona said gently. She couldn't believe it. She didn't want to believe it. Rogue telepaths might kill mundanes, sure, but to kill two of their own people? To work for the vampires? What kind of sick bastard would do such a thing? Sasha, Fiona said, her voice calm but insistent. Stay with us, love. We need you. I need you. Brian's thoughts resonated with agreement. She's right, Sash, he said quietly. We can't do anything to help Del and Trace. I need you to help me get Fiona out of here. The police are coming, and we don't have a lot of time. Sasha clutched tightly to both of their minds. Fighting back her tears, she grasped the crucifix again and prayed for strength. All right, she said, forcing herself to take slow, deep breaths. All right, I'm with you. Drawing on her years of military service and Fiona's iron will, Sasha pushed the grief to the back of her mind and walled it off. She would return to it later. Right now she needed to finish the mission and make sure that the rest of them got out alive. Fiona aimed her electric torch at the array of numbers and letters written at each corner of the intersection in front of her. 
77-E1-AQ10. She suppressed a sigh. It would be illogical, she supposed, to expect the designers of the ventilation system to provide an easily understood system of navigation. It wasn't as if they would want to encourage the sort of intrusion in which she was currently engaged. Brian, she said, focusing her thoughts into the telepathic link. Show me the schematics around intersection 77 mark E1 mark AQ10. She closed her eyes and watched as lines of green light sketched themselves across her vision, forming an intricate web of connecting passages. One intersection was limbed in red and had the words, You are here, superimposed upon it. An embellishment on Brian's part, no doubt, but useful nonetheless. Take the right passage. You'll reach a vertical shaft in about ten meters. That will take you down another five stories before it goes horizontal again. There should be hand rungs on the far wall of the shaft. Acknowledged. Fiona paused to adjust the strap that held her torch against her temple, then proceeded in the direction indicated. The ten meters of horizontal distance took an annoyingly long time to travel. The ducts were about one meter on each side, only large enough for her to crawl through on her hands and knees. The narrow beam from the torch provided the only illumination, save for a small amount of ambient light that filtered in through open vents. While the ventilation ducts were dark, however, they were far from quiet. The rush of air and the thrum of fans were a constant companion, joined by the echoes of conversations, the whine of drive turbines, and the myriad other sounds of an active skyport. So it was that Fiona did not become aware of the second person in the ventilation ducts until she was already halfway down the vertical shaft. The sound of feet against the rungs above her was light and quick, and even with her psychometabolic powers enhancing her senses, it took some time before she was able to pick it out from among the ambient noise. Potential hostile detected, she told Sasha and Brian. She paused briefly on the climbing rungs enhancing her sense of touch so that she could feel the vibrations caused by the other person's descent. Estimate that it is a woman, 55 to 60 kilograms, probably combat capable, range approximately 15 meters. She covered her torch and glanced briefly upward before continuing her descent. I see no indication that she is using a light source, which suggests supernatural vision or vision analogs. A tremor of worry resonated from Sasha. Vampire? Fiona frowned. Unlikely. If she had a vampire's resilience, she would simply have jumped down on top of me. Do you think she knows you've seen her? Brian asked. Before Fiona could reply, a soft clink of metal against metal sounded from approximately 15 meters above her. She looked up in time to see a small gray sphere burst open just above her, spraying the ventilation shaft with some sort of oil. It must have been alchemical in nature, for it covered everything far more swiftly and thoroughly than one could reasonably have expected from a vessel of that size. In seconds, Fiona's entire body and everything around it were completely covered in a slick, colorless film. She grimaced. Grease bomb, she told Sasha and Brian. Descent temporarily halted. Stand by. She hooked an arm through the nearest climbing rung and reached into a pocket with her free hand. The grease bomb had left her hands and feet too slippery to gain any purchase against the metal rungs, so she locked herself in place with one elbow while she pulled out a handkerchief and carefully wiped her fingers. A thin black rope fell past Fiona on one side. She looked up and saw a slender woman, dressed all in black, rappelling down towards her. Fiona had expected that. Looking down, she saw that the rope extended to the bottom of the shaft. 
She quickly calculated that there wasn't time for her to pull out her own grappling hook before the other woman caught up with her. Grasping the rope with her handkerchief-wrapped hand, she let go of the wall and let herself slide down the rope, bracing her oil-slick boots against the walls to control the rate of her descent. She hit bottom in ten seconds, and immediately dove into the adjoining horizontal shaft. With her clothes and boots coated in oil, moving on her hands and knees was nearly impossible. Abandoning dignity, Fiona kicked off her shoes and pulled off her pants, then continued on in her socks and underwear. She only hoped that the disguise amulet would hide her embarrassing condition when she left the skyport. Fiona crawled through the ducks as quickly as she could, taking random turns at the first three intersections she encountered. She was glad that she had emptied the contents of the package into her backpack before leaving the staging area. She would not have wanted to try to carry a package out of here after it had been covered in alchemical lubricant. She glanced briefly at the markings on each intersection she passed, feeding that information back to Sasha so Brian could keep track of her whereabouts. She could hear the other woman moving through the tunnels behind her. Though it was hard to gauge direction or distance through sound alone, the vibrations in the metal floor told Fiona that the distance between them had grown slightly. Unfortunately, the difference was only slight. The tremors from the other woman's pursuit had not fallen off sharply, as would have happened if they had taken different turns at one of those intersections. Hostile is still in pursuit, she told the others. Either she is unusually lucky or she has some means of tracking me. Should we use the non-detection scroll? Sasha asked. It was key to all of us, so it should erase any set marks or fingerprints you might have left. Negative, Fiona said firmly. You and Brian will need to use it after you leave. Guide me to someplace quiet where I will have room to maneuver. I will confront her there. There's a storage room not far from you. Take the next left and go out through the second vent on the floor. Fiona came to the vent less than a minute later. She no longer had the tools from her utility belt, so she pulled a combat knife from her shoulder harness and used it to pry open the grate. The room below was dark, as she had expected. After looking around with her torch and listening for any sign of trouble, she lowered herself down until she was hanging by her fingers. There was at least another meter between her and the floor, so she prepared her legs to absorb the fall and then let herself drop. The expected impact never came. Half a meter before she hit the floor, her fall was broken by something soft and elastic. The room lit up with a soft yellow glow, previously unseen sigils coming to life in a ring that had been sketched on the floor with some kind of invisible ink. She hung suspended in midair in a sphere of light above that circle, unable to reach the floor, walls, or ceiling. Sasha must have felt her surprise through the link. Fiona, what's happening? Fiona reached out and touched the walls of the sphere. It resisted her touch gently but firmly. She felt a prickling against her skin when she pressed against it, but she did not notice any ill effects from touching it. Spell trap, she told Sasha. Ritual magic from the look of it. It seems to have enveloped me in a kind of force field. Can you get out? Fiona pressed harder against the sphere with one hand, focusing the pressure into her fingertips. The prickling grew uncomfortably intense, but she found that she could force her hand outside the sphere. Eventually, she said, drawing her hand back inside and rubbing it to dispel the pins and needles sensation. I have lost most of my equipment, but I believe I can find a way out. She did not add that she almost certainly did not have enough time to do so. Frustration and anger rose up from deep inside her, 
and with an effort of will she walled them off and pushed them back down. Her emotions would not help her here. She needed to think, and to do so quickly. She had removed her shoulder harness, and was in the process of weighting one end of it with her knife, when the door to the storeroom opened, and someone slipped inside. The woman shut the door behind her, locked it, and switched on the light before turning her attention to Fiona. As Fiona had guessed, she looked to be about 60 kilos, and 175 centimeters tall, a little taller than Fiona, but similarly proportioned. She had the look of a dancer about her, sleek and athletic. She was covered in a black bodysuit with a utility belt, backpack, and equipment harness. She was armed with a pistol, a stun gun, and several small gray spheres that hung from clips on her belt, which were probably smoke grenades or additional grease bombs. Her unkempt, multicolored hair was pulled back away from her face by a large hair comb, but it flew out in all directions behind her head. She looked young, no more than 18 or 19 but her large eyes held more maturity than Fiona had typically seen in a woman of that age. She looked up at Fiona with a mixture of satisfaction and sympathy. "'You led me on a good chase,' she said. Her tone was conversational, that of one professional to another. "'I should thank you. It's been a while since someone's given me a workout like that.' Fiona looked around at the force field sphere. "'You seem to have had the situation well under control,' she said, forcing herself not to show any of the frustration she felt. Out of professional curiosity, how did you know I would come here? The other woman shrugged. This wasn't the only one. I set up a few others here and there before the mission started. I figured I wasn't the only one who might use the vents to get out. I couldn't cover all the exits, but I picked the ones that felt right. Fiona raised an eyebrow. Just random luck, then? The runner twisted her lip into a wry half-grin. You'd be amazed how often that works for me. She gestured at Fiona's backpack. All right, enough shop talk. You know what I'm here for. Obediently, Fiona pulled out the stack of data cards, which were sealed in a plastic clamshell container, and the small metal box. She reached out her hands to the runner, holding the object's palm upward. The younger woman snorted. Yeah... See, that's not going to happen. No offense, but I know what you can do, and I'm not going to get within arm's reach of you. Just push him through the field, and I'll pick him up. Fiona quickly covered her surprise at that. And what if I refuse? She asked. The police must certainly be on their way, and I doubt you can afford to stay here long. The runner looked disappointed. Do we really have to play that game? You hardly seem a murderer. Yeah, you're right about that. But I have no problem with using this. She took out the stun gun and held it up so Fiona could see it more closely. It wasn't just a melee range weapon. It was the type that was equipped with a pair of gas-propelled darts, which would deliver the weapon's charge to a target up to five meters away. I know you're pretty resilient, but somehow I doubt that even you can stand up to 150,000 volts. Her expression turned sad. So why don't we quit screwing around and you give me that package before my partner shows up? He's already killed two of your guys, and I'd really hate for you to be here when he shows up. Fiona felt her lip curl into a sneer, the anger starting to leak through behind her wall of control. Yes, I'm sure your heart bleeds for us. She pushed her fists through the force field in two sharp, sudden blows, dropping the box and the data cards on the floor in front of her. 
She noticed that this time her hands stung with pain after the impact, probably because she had struck the field with greater force. The runner came forward and quickly collected the objects, slipping them inside her backpack. Do you understand who you are working for? Fiona asked her, her voice low but intense. Do you have any idea what is in there? Yes, the woman said, her voice and eyes suddenly hard. I'm working for the one who's paying me. What's in there is a payout big enough that I won't have to worry about how I'm going to eat or where mom is going to get her medicine or how I'm going to pay for an apartment in a neighborhood where I don't have to sleep in the bathtub every night because I'm afraid I'll be hit by stray gunfire. Beyond that, I don't care. Her pose softened and she shrugged. Look, it's nothing personal. If your boss wants to hire me to steal it back, I'll be happy to talk business with him. But that's another job. And right now, this job says I have to get this stuff out of here safely. She turned to go. If you can't understand that, find a different line of work, because you got no business being a runner anyway. She pulled out a communicator and held it to her ear. Valiant, this is Ferret. I've got the rock. Alpha Niner has been neutralized. Proceed to extraction. A man's voice crackled over the speaker. Ferret, Valiant here. Please confirm. Alpha Niner has been neutralized. The woman took a deep breath and let it out before pushing the talk button. Affirmative. She took a bad fall during pursuit and broke her neck. I think it was too much even for her regen power. Good work, Ferret. I'd rather put a couple of bullets in her head to be sure, but it's better if it looks like an accident. I'm heading out now. Vixen's going to take care of clearing the others. See you in the future. The runner put the communicator away. Not if I see you first, she muttered. She looked back at Fiona. That spell will burn itself out in about five minutes. I don't think he'll come after you now, but you might want to lay low for a while, just in case. She lowered her eyes. I'm sorry I couldn't do the same for your friends. I really am. Fiona said nothing as the woman left. As the door swung shut, she turned her thoughts back to the link. Brian, Sasha... Abort mission. Repeat, abort mission. Proceed to extraction by most direct possible means. I will meet you at the rendezvous point. Fiona knew Sasha could sense the tension in her thoughts. She could feel her trying to get in, under the surface to the emotions beneath, but Fiona rebuffed her firmly. Understood, Sasha said at last, sounding hurt. Do you need any help getting out? Why would I? I'm no longer carrying anything illicit, and they never look at people who are leaving a skyport. Go. I will be fine. Okay. Be safe, love. Reluctantly, Sasha withdrew the link, and her and Brian's thoughts faded from Fiona's awareness. For a long moment, Fiona just stood there, her feet resting on invisible force, her arms rigid at her sides. Queen began slowly, rising up from a place deep inside her, building and building until it tore at her throat and echoed off the walls of the room. She pounded the walls of the force field with her fists, her feet, even her forehead, lashing out again and again with psychically enhanced strength. Her breath expended itself and she sucked down air again to give further voice to her rage. Her body stung wherever she struck the force field, and the pain drove her to strike even harder, howling and snarling like a rabid animal. 
The force field shuddered under the relentless assault, its golden light growing weaker as each impact stole some of its energy. At last, the sigils burned out, and the field collapsed, dumping her unceremoniously onto the cold, hard floor. She lay where she fell, her whole body quivering with her screams, the raw emotion pouring out of her like water through a shattered dam. At some point, the screams gave way to sobs, and she shuddered and wailed and wept like a child, both for her friends and for her shame at having failed them so completely. Is there anything else you can tell us, Mr. Carlson? Daniel fidgeted in his chair and shifted the ice pack on his head, wondering if his head would ever stop throbbing. The police officers who sat opposite him were leaning forward with intent expressions, but so far neither of them seemed to have noticed that he was under a doppelcharm. Unlike a simple disguise amulet, a doppelcharm was an actual transmutation spell. The only way to tell if someone was wearing one was by using mage sight, and so far no mages had shown up to question him or the other dock workers. Mr. Carlson? He sighed. Sorry, no. I went over to check on Benny, and I don't know how I ended up on the floor. Maybe I just fainted, maybe he knocked me out. He shook his head. I guess it wasn't really Benny, huh? One of the police officers, a woman with short blonde hair, frowned and nodded. That's our theory. One of the other employees said that he saw the suspect make the guns fly away from the other men on their own, which certainly sounds like a talent that Benny Chidomo didn't have. Daniel snorted. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Benny had nothing like that. Did you see or hear anything that might have told you where he was going? No, ma'am. Sorry. He looked up at her and frowned. So what was this all about, anyway? I thought those other guys were the thieves, but then Benny killed them and just ran off. The woman grimaced. We believe you got caught in the crossfire between two rival crime families, she said. It was very dangerous for you to try and stop them like that. You should never attack a thief if he's armed, especially if you aren't. You ought to thank the prophet you're still alive. Daniel hung his head and nodded. Yeah, I know. I guess I just wanted to do my job, you know? I don't like the idea of nobody stealing people's stuff. And then when they killed those guards, he shrugged. I just got so mad. That's understandable. But stopping crooks is our job, not yours. There was a sound of stylish shoes snapping regularly against the concrete floor of the cargo bay. Daniel looked up to see Ava Salindi striding toward them, her face set in a calm but firm do-not-screw-with-me expression. She stopped a meter away and bowed stiffly toward the police officers. Pardon the intrusion, officers, she said briskly, but I've just received an urgent call from Mr. Carlson's family. It seems that they saw the attack on the news and will not stop calling until they speak with their son. Not a problem, Miss Salindi, the officer said, rising to her feet. We were just finishing here. She pulled out a business card and passed it to Daniel. If you think of anything else, please give me a call, all right? Daniel nodded and stood. I hope you get him, he said, bowing to the officers. Then Ava took his arm and led him away, until they passed beyond the police tape and disappeared into the crowds of the skyport. You were very convincing, Ava said, as she ushered Daniel into a sleek black skimmer that waited for them in the fifth-level parking garage. 
You looked as if you'd had some experience impersonating others before. Daniel shrugged and slid into the back seat alongside Ava. Comes with the territory, he said, sounding as numb as he felt. My people spend their whole lives pretending to be normal. Plus, I took some acting classes in college. He laughed once, but it sounded dead and hollow. (laughs) Funny how the training comes back when you need it. The driver pulled the skimmer out into traffic and began heading south toward the point where Daniel would eventually be dropped off. A panel with a tinted glass window separated the front and back seats, granting Daniel and Ava a measure of privacy. Daniel pulled off the doppelcharm and stared at it while his body shifted back into its usual form. Ava leaned forward and caught his gaze, her violet eyes etched with concern. Daniel, what's wrong? The mission was a success, you know. Daniel looked away, adjusting his ice pack again. Callie got the package back then? Yes. She delivered it to our employer about 20 minutes ago. He reportedly was quite pleased. Why, you should be receiving payment in a matter of hours. Daniel nodded once. Great. That's that's great, Ava. She took his free hand in both of hers and squeezed it gently. As she did so, he felt the echoes of her emotions. Puzzlement, genuine concern, and empathy. Daniel, please, talk to me. What's troubling you? He let out a weary sigh, then looked at her directly. What's troubling me, Ava, is that four men died today for the sake of a box. What's troubling me is that two of them died after that box had already been stolen, just to feed the bloodlust of a man that I finally realized is psychotic. He gripped her hand a little more tightly. What's troubling me is that I healed that psychopath and let him do what he did to those men. And finally, what's troubling me is that I'm pretty damn sure that those men were two of my own people. Several emotions ran through Ava at once, but the strongest among them were guilt and shame. Daniel narrowed his eyes at her. You knew, didn't you? He said. He kept his voice quiet, but he couldn't keep the anger from leaking out around the edges. You knew that there were other spookies making a play for this thing, and you didn't tell me. She was surprised at that, and her eyes widened to reflect it. I thought you knew, she said, her tone disbelieving. Victor was supposed to brief everyone on the agents who were deemed likely to try intercepting the package. Telepaths, yes, but also mages and mundane operatives from several factions. Anyone who seemed likely to want what our employer had. She shook her head slightly. I can't believe he didn't tell you. He had their dossiers for two weeks before the mission. Daniel raised his eyebrows again. It wasn't the words that surprised him. He wouldn't put any deception past Victor now. But the way she said them. In her distress, the Skywalker accent had vanished from her voice, leaving something different, closer to the middle-class manner of speech that Daniel used. Just another little deception, he thought sourly. His grip tightened further on her hand. Daniel, please. I swear I wouldn't have kept something like this from you. I thought you were angry at your people like Victor was. He said you wanted out. I wouldn't try and trick someone into betraying their loyalties. Daniel couldn't quite read her thoughts, but her emotions indicated that she was telling the truth. He relaxed his grip a little. All right, he said. Prove it. Tell me who we were working for. She reared back as if struck. Daniel, I can't. Anonymity was a strict part of the contract. Daniel tightened his grip on her hand again. 
He put down his ice pack and turned to face her, straightening up to his full height so that he was looking down on her. Sure, Ava could always switch back to Evan if she wanted to fight. The emotions Daniel was picking up from her, though, told him that she wanted him to trust her, and that she was willing to stay vulnerable in order to persuade him. He wasn't sure why she cared, but at the moment he intended to use it to his advantage. That's my price, Ava. You want me to trust you? You want me to see you as a decent person, instead of another manipulating skag like Victor? Then come clean with me. For my two dead brothers, if not for me. Ava winced at that. He felt her surrender a moment before she showed it, lowering her head and letting out a ragged breath. All right. Just promise me you won't tell anyone who told you. He relaxed his hold on her hand again. I promise, he said. Now who was it? She swallowed and took a breath before looking up at him. My contact was a man named William Westerson. It's not widely publicized, but he's a captain in the service of Malcolm Ardvalos. Ice water ran down Daniel's spine. It took him a moment to find his breath. Malcolm Ardvalos? The vampire prince of Metamorph City? She nodded heavily. The same. Slowly, Daniel sank back into his seat. Pull over, he said softly. Ava looked out her window and frowned. We're still a long way from your place. I said pull over! Ava hurriedly grabbed the intercom and relayed the command to the driver. While he pulled off the highway and found a secluded parking lot, Daniel's mind raced. Malcolm Ardvalos, the kingpin of Metamorph City. The Vampire Queen's right-hand man in the Imperial Capital. An investment analyst by trade, and the third richest citizen in the Empire, he spent his days as an advisor to a dozen different corporations and several influential non-profit groups. He was never quite at the top of any official chain of command, but he was also never far from the ears of those who ostensibly made the big decisions. To all appearances, he was untouchable, while word on the street often connected his name to crimes like blackmail, protection rackets, unlicensed prostitution and drug running, no prosecutor had ever gathered enough solid evidence to take him down. The Hive considered him and his organization the number one threat to the safety of the collective in Metamorph City. And now Daniel was, however unofficially, a part of his payroll. To his credit, Daniel managed not to throw up until he was outside Ava's skimmer. But it was a very close thing indeed. May 28th, 1995, Christos Reckoning. The elder surveyed the small apartment with calm, impassive eyes, but her nostrils flared in distaste. I suppose that portraying this as a suicide is out of the question. Victor bowed his head in a show of deference. He didn't need to look around at the broken furniture, the toppled shelves, or the thousand bits of flotsam that had once been a man's treasured possessions. He'd been here when the destruction happened, and the place hadn't been all that impressive even before. I'm afraid so, Elder. When a rogue teak decides to resist arrest, the results can be somewhat... chaotic. I regret any inconvenience I have caused for the Hive. The older telepath waved off the apology with one hand. She picked her way carefully through the apartment, the hem of her plain gray dress swirling around her knees. Victor admired her long, stocking-clad legs as she passed him. 
Though Miriam Bakhtivar was over a hundred years old, she was also one of the strongest egoists in the collective, and her psychometabolic powers had allowed her to retain the appearance and vitality of a twenty-five-year-old. Her glossy black hair was plaited into a braid that came down to the middle of her back, and her olive skin glowed with a healthy, unblemished complexion that a woman a third her age would have killed to possess. Victor had never noticed her beauty before, though he was certain he must have met her dozens of times. In truth, the elder's subtle telepathic manipulations usually made it difficult to remember anything about them, even their gender. He'd never noticed that before, either, which showed just how powerful the elders were. No doubt they told themselves that it was a way for them to distance their personal identities from their role as the voice of the hive, to maintain the notion that the collective was a society without rulers. To Victor, it all seemed like just another mind game, one he was glad to be rid of. Bakhtivar passed through the living room, and down the narrow hallway to the bathroom where Victor had finally ended the fight. The occupant had hoped to make use of the razor blades stored under the sink as a weapon against him, but Victor's telekinesis had proved stronger. The man's body lay slumped in the tub, drained white by the dozens of long, deep cuts that the whirling blades had opened across his flesh. The elder put her hands on her hips and sighed. Philippe Deverell, she pronounced, shaking her head slightly. So much talent and all of it wasted. She cast a sidelong glance at Victor. You're certain he was responsible for the deaths at the Skyport? Yes, Elder. I found a doppel charm on his person that matches the appearance of the man who killed Matthews and Umbara. In addition, his personal computer contains the access codes for a numbered bank account. Three days ago, a sum of 150,000 marks was deposited into that account from an untraceable source. The vampires, no doubt, Bakhtavar said, nodding sadly. She knelt by the side of the tub and looked into the man's lifeless eyes. She reached out to his face with one hand, though she did not actually touch the body. Oh, Philippe, how could you do this? How could you betray your own family? Devereux was always a loner, Victor said gravely. He had no telepathic talent, so his direct participation in the collective was limited. And he did have history of mental problems, even a few arrests. But nothing like this, the elder insisted. He was just a troubled young man who needed help. Why he shunned our aid and went to the vampires is something I fear we shall never understand. Probably not, Victor agreed. Again, I apologize that I was unable to capture him for interrogation. The woman sighed again. Perhaps it was just as well, she said, getting to her feet and brushing off her knees. This entire affair was dangerously public. A quiet theft might have been ignored, given that the goods themselves were illegal, but murder at a skyport demands police involvement. This, at least, should satisfy them enough to prevent any further intrusions into our society. As you say, Elder. Victor bowed. Would you like me to have the apartment cleaned? Bakhtivar pursed her lips, her cool gray eyes narrowed in thought. Not entirely, she said at last. Remove all the items of notable value and anything that might connect him back to the collective. Then use a non-detection scroll to erase the evidence of our presence. The police will conclude that he was robbed by a band of rogue mages. It shall be done, Victor promised. He paused, then added, Elder, I would like to invoke the right of bounty. She arched one perfectly sculpted eyebrow. Victor put up a hand. 
I realize that anything we take will have to be destroyed to prevent a sympathetic trace back to the collective. But the numbered account hasn't been touched yet. If we wipe his hard drive, there's nothing to tie it back to Devereaux. Bakhtavar seemed to consider that for a moment, then nodded. Very well, Victor. In exchange for finding the murderer and putting this matter to rest before the police could become involved, the right of bounty is granted. Philippe's blood money is yours to do with as you wish. Victor bowed again. Thank you, Elder. I am glad that my service has been of value to the Hive. She gave him an odd look, then passed out of the room. He followed, and when they were at the front door, she paused and turned back to him. What is on your mind, Victor? She asked, looking concerned. Oh, on the surface you're certainly calm enough, but I look inside you and I see thoughts so scattered and fragmented that I can make no sense of them. She reached out and took his hand, a surprisingly tender gesture for an elder on business. Is there anything I can do to help? Victor lowered his head and sighed heavily. I'm sorry, Elder. It's just the job. I've seen too much death over too many years. She squeezed his hand. What do you need? He looked up at her, at the beautiful, elegant face that had been hidden for so many years behind a mask of telepathic fog. I need to get out, he said. Elder, I've been doing this for 15 years. We both know that the Hive is never going to approve me as a breeding cell husband. Not with all the blood on my hands. He shook his head slightly. After this job is done, I'm through. I'm taking Devereaux's money and leaving active participation in the Collective. I want to start a new life for myself. He shrugged. Maybe I can even find a little happiness. Bakhtavar looked regretful, but she nodded sympathetically. Your duties have led you down a harder path than most of us can imagine, she said. We'll be sad to see you go, Victor, but we will not try to stop you. Participation in the Collective has always been voluntary, and whatever debts you might have owed to this hive are long since paid. She reached up and put a hand gently against his cheek. Wherever you go, I hope that you find peace to quiet the storm inside you. He bowed his head. As do I. Thank you for your understanding, Elder. May the great maker go with you. She drew back from him then, and they bowed to each other in parting. He used his telekinesis to open the door for her, and she nodded her thanks and left without another word. Smiling to himself, Victor went to the bedroom at the back of the apartment and opened it. The vampire was sitting at Devereaux's cluttered desk, looking through the man's collection of fetish magazines with an expression that suggested a mixture of fascination and disgust. His tailored gray business suit and perfectly styled hair were a stark contrast to the slovenly nature of his surroundings. She's gone, Victor said, leaning back against the doorframe and crossing his arms. You heard? I did, the vampire said, setting down an issue of leather and lace and turning to face him. And what is your assessment of the product? Victor grinned. You're getting your money's worth. The old fool never had a clue that I was lying to her. The simple truth of that statement gave Victor a heady feeling of power, like nothing he had ever known. He couldn't actually feel the nanopixies at work inside his brain, or the web of neural circuitry that they had constructed in parallel to the neurons of his cerebral cortex. It was strange. 
he would have thought that splitting his brain's electrical signals between neurons and wires would have caused some kind of noticeable change in his conscious awareness. Apart from a nasty fever on the day that the nanopixies were injected, though, nothing seemed to have changed. Nothing, that is, except for the fact that he was now immune to telepathic intrusion. A very small smile bent the corners of the vampire's mouth, and his pale blue eyes glinted. Excellent, he said. Then our employees will be completely protected from mind readers? Victor shrugged. The teeps will be able to pick up surface thoughts if they're strong enough, but memories and subsurface thoughts seem to be completely protected. I assume you already train your people to resist interrogation. Those same tactics should work well enough, now that the teeps are blocked from getting any deeper inside. The vampire rose to his feet. Mr. Ardhvalos will be very pleased to hear that. Well done, Victor. Victor nodded and followed the man out of the room. Is there anything I should know about the circuitry? Will it wear out? What happens if it breaks? It will not wear out, the vamp said, and the odds of it breaking are extraordinarily small. The NPs will scavenge your bloodstream for the necessary components to build and maintain the circuitry. The laboratory's technicians recommend taking regular mineral supplements, but you should not require any sort of external maintenance. (laughs) Glad to hear it, Victor said. You said the odds of it breaking are extraordinarily small. What happens if it does break? Your higher brain functions have automatically expanded to use the additional bandwidth we have given you. Essentially, your cortex is becoming dependent on the neural circuitry to carry out its duties. The vampire shrugged. In the unlikely event that the security is disrupted, you may experience some temporary loss of higher brain functions until your cortex reroutes the signals through the original neural pathways. The initial clinical trials in Algra suggest that the disruption will only last a few minutes, at most. He smiled, showing a hint of his fangs. Really, though, as long as you stay away from lightning bolts and high-voltage power lines, you won't have anything to worry about. Victor chuckled. (laughs) Hey, that's more than a fair trade-off for being psychically untouchable. He bowed to the vamp. Thank you again, Mr. Westerson. I'm glad we were able to do business. As am I, Westerson said, returning the bow. I shall leave you now to attend to your cleaning duties. Good luck to you on your new life, and if you're ever looking for further employment, please, don't hesitate to call. The vampire left, and Victor turned his attention back to the apartment, gathering up anything that a gang of unlicensed mages might consider worth stealing. He would take the goods to one of the enchanted waste disposal facilities on street level, which would eradicate any sympathetic traces that might be used to find them. It was drudgery, to be sure, but he consoled himself with the knowledge that it was the last necessary step on the road to his independence. He'd known from the beginning that he'd probably need a scapegoat for his actions at the Skyport, and Philippe Devereaux had fit the profile perfectly. There might be people in the collective who would remember him, but no one would look at the matter closely enough to discover the inconsistencies. He might have been a strong telekinetic, but he had no telepathy, and was thus unimportant. Victor caught his reflection in a mirror and smiled. He had the money, and he had his freedom. Now he just had to go get the girl, and it would be a perfect, happy ending. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast right after these messages.
Okay, I need to figure out how to release Wasteland. It's coming up soon. I'm not sure when. Uh, let's get some feedback. Hi, this is Scott Sigler, and I'm really happy that I have this opportunity to convey my thoughts on Murr's cliffhanger bullshit that ended season three of Heaven. Oh, come on. Yeah, I enjoyed your cliffhanger about as much as that one time I was riding the bench in football and I got to come off in the fourth quarter because we were up by 36 points and his splinter went right into my right butt cheek and then I couldn't finish the game. That's what your cliffhanger is like. It's like a giant wooden splinter right in my ass. So that's Mer what's Lafferty wrong with is him. the kind of person that would find a little wounded bird and then bite its head clean off. Mer Lafferty is the kind of person that would pull the wings off of flies, then super glue them to a frog's head so the frog can smell the wings but can't eat them, thereby torturing both frog and fly. Oh, that's original. Mer Lafferty is so evil, Lucas went with Darth Maul instead of Darth Mer because the name Darth Mer was scaring the crap out of all the little kids so they wouldn't buy the friggin' Jar Jar Binks dolls. That woman and her rotten piece of shit cliffhanger are both evil. Evil, evil. That's like evil cubed, which is, I think, nine times as evil as a normal evil or maybe 4.5 times evil is evil squared, but I'm not that good with math, but I know evil when I hear it, and Merle Laverty, you are evil. Don't you ever cliffhanger me again! Alright, I'm starting a new fund called Valium for Sigler. Check out merverse.com. I'm just kidding. I don't have a fund set up for Valium for Sigler, but we all agree he needs it. If you want to find out what he's yelling about, check out Heaven's Seasons 1, 2, and 3 at patiobooks.com. And if you're as uptight as Scott is about the end of Earth, you can download Wasteland in its entirety on March 19th at patiobooks.com. Hey everybody, J.C. Hutchins here. You probably know me from the Seventh Son Trilogy, the most popular podcast novel series in history. But what you may not know is that I've launched a brand new show at my site, jchutchins.net. It's called the Ultra Creatives Interview Series. I'm chatting with some of the coolest, most brilliant writers, artists, film directors, and entrepreneurs in the social media scene, and you're going to love it. Now, this ain't hardcore 60-minute style reporting, guys. I get ultra-creative personalities to unwind, take it easy, and talk about their worldview and their work. We're only a few episodes in right now, but I've already interviewed film director Patrick Lussier and screenwriter Matt Vane, award-winning rising star author Matt Wallace, Jeff Pulver, co-founder of Vonage and creator of Pulver TV, and Mer Lafferty, a trailblazing podcaster and author. Future guests include entrepreneur and Mahalo.com founder Jason Calacanis and professional blogger Laurel from laurel.wordpress.com. This is content you cannot miss, folks, and you're never going to know who's going to show up next. So if you're hungry to listen to some kicked-back, casual conversations with some of the most creative players on the net, check out my new Ultra Creatives interview series at jchutchins.net. Hi, this is Martin Cassidy of the band Glass Darkly, and you're listening to the Metamore City Podcast. Thanks, Martin. I've been getting to know Martin Casserly over on Twitter. He's a cool guy. You can find out about his band, Glass Darkly, at their MySpace page, myspace.com slash glassdarklyband. I want to thank all our voice actors for this episode, especially the two new cast members who joined us this week. The elder Miriam Bakhtivar was played by Martha Puskas, and William Westerson was played by none other than J.C. Hutchins. 
Of course, if you didn't recognize his voice right away, you probably figured it out after you heard the promo for his new Ultra Creative series. It's a very cool show, folks, and I urge you to check it out. This show is running long, but I think I have time to squeeze in one voicemail. Hello, Chris. This is Amy Bowen, a.k.a. the Deadpan Ambassador. I'm calling to say that I just listened to Chapter 1 of Making the Cut today, and I absolutely loved it. There was one moment in particular that just made me clap my hands and laugh with glee. It was the moment when the main characters are about to have their gestalt of support for each other. The reason why I loved that part so much was that I instantly recognized the background music, Float Up From Depth by Adhesion. That's the same song I used as the background music for the novel excerpt I recorded for Jack Mangan's Deadpan Podcast number 36. You, my friend, have good taste in pod-safe music. Thanks, Amy. Choosing the right music for Metamore City is one of the most challenging parts of putting the show together, so I'm always gratified when people say that it worked. And for those who may be wondering, you can find Adhesion's music at evilresidence.com slash adhesion. That'll do it for this week, folks. We are totally out of time. If you want to send in voicemail, the number is 206-350-7333. You can also email your comments in audio form or text form to feedback at metamorcity.com. Also, don't forget to check out the discussion forums at thecursed.org, where you can discuss the stories with other metamorphs and ask questions of me, the author. That's it. I'm done. I'll see you in two weeks. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org.